Hello, fellow design lovers. If you're tickled by architecture and the communities that designers create, you're in the right place. You're listening to Prairie Design Lab. We are a brand new podcast coming to you from the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture in Winnipeg. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast that builds on all that has been accomplished by the first architecture faculty in Western Canada. It was founded 101 years ago. This podcast is created by the students, the faculty of the university, and by many people who care deeply about our built environment. I'm Terry McLeod, and I am the host and producer of Prairie Design Lab. Today we're going to travel from the prairies and beyond to Chad and Hong Kong and Paris and London, all through the lens of Winnipeg's Central Park. I'm back in the closet today to tell you about episode two of our brand new podcast. I guess I didn't tell you that I was here last week too. I'm in the closet because it's the best place to record my part of the stories that I'm telling you these days. I'm in the closet because we can't get into the studio at UMFM Campus Radio, which is our other sponsoring organization. COVID has locked us out of UMFM, so to record my narration, I've squeezed into our bedroom closet with its great acoustics and my wife's beautiful dresses. Hmm, nice. Nice hats up there, too. Many of the people I'm talking with these days are not in this closet, but outdoors. Two of them are in Central Park in downtown Winnipeg. Central Park is one of Winnipeg's very first parks, built on land bought from the Hudson's Bay Company in 1893. It started out as an elite, fashionable park surrounded by Victorian mansions. But in the 1960s, it began to fall into decline, fueled by poverty and drugs and crime and a changing city. In 2008, a coalition of community-minded people began to pull together to transform Central Park, and by 2012, it had become a revitalized new park. I visited Central Park in July of 2020 and met with one of the people who was credited with helping to lead that transformation this man. I'm Raymond Garbui and um, I work for CEDA, Community Education Development Association, here also with as a community organizer, working part of Knox United Church and also working here as uh, one of the people with vested interests in Central Park and inner city Winnipeg. What do you mean by vested interests? I meant by that uh, there is many people who live this um, neighborhood are somehow related to me, either indigenous, they are related to me through their history, all coming from um, colonized backgrounds. We do share a bunch of culture elements, like collective lives and all this, and also in terms of Caucasians or Canadian-borns, they are related to me because these are people who welcome me here and these are people who mentor me and people from whom I learn, thanks to whom I became what uh, I can say I am today, <laughs> uh, Canadian. Also the other group that I could mention is um, the newcomer, new immigrants and refugees, which are backgrounds that I do share, myself coming from war-torn country and uh, had lived 
civil wars throughout my childhood. I come from Chad, which is a country in Central Africa, uh, the fifth largest country in Africa. It's a country with uh, lots of uh, civil war background and uh, it's still going on. So seeing refugees, newcomer immigrants here, interacting with indigenous, with Canadian-born. Canada is my country and um, Winnipeg is my city and Central Park is my village. <laughs> uh, today we are here at um, the Winnipeg Central Global Market, uh, which is um, a community initiative. It's a grassroots initiative uh, supported by Knox United Church and organized by uh, Community Education Development Association, SIDA. So we are here organizing this uh, market, which started on the middle of July. We usually start it in the middle of June with uh, Aboriginal Music Festival week, but uh, this year we did not go for that because of the COVID-19. So we delayed the opening of the market and we launched it uh, three weeks ago. It's an open market which showcases art pieces, cultural elements. Incredibly beautiful shoes and purses right here. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, the vendors here are uh, most of them are uh, newcomers, so for them, some of them do not make any money when they come here. They do not make any income, but for them, it's a way of getting in touch with uh, other community members, people from uh, different cultural backgrounds, to interact with them and uh, to share their cultural element to show who they are. The way for them to spend time during the the summer is to come here, listening to the music from across the world, interacting with other people, answering questions about their products uh, for whoever is passing by who stops to ask questions. And so the market started, I think this is the third year. Most of the people that you see here, the youth who are here through SIDA and uh, Winnipeg Central Women's Resource Center, I was able to submit a grant proposal to the Green Team provincial government and that got approved to hire 14 students full-time <laughs> yeah from July to end of August so those youth who are here who are students from Gordon Bell High School and students from uh, across the city I have been mentoring them they have been learning about uh, hands-on skills they are practicing the skills that uh, they learn uh, within the school you said Central Park is your village. Yes. Why do you say that? I say that because in Central Park uh, there is nothing that I can miss from back home that I can find in Central Park. <laughs> what do you mean? The produce, for example, through the Rainbow Community Garden, families do grow exotic produce that are not grown here in Manitoba and which are imported here frozen, but they brought them here so I can buy them here. And also any kind of clothing, a way of dressing, any kind of people that I can see back home, I can see it here. And loud music, the way that I used to listen to back home. That's some of Raymond's music from back home. It's a Rwandan artist named Mehdi with a tune that he calls Nui Chigali. I'm from Kigali. Can we please listen to a little bit more of that? Mehdi 
That music was blasting from the huge speakers in front of the tents at the global market. I just lifted my mic into the air and captured it. Mehdi was echoing across the lush soccer pitch that sunny day in Central Park. It was a pretty sweet experience. The fresh celery, chives, beets, and the African tea, as the ladies called it, that I bought there was pretty sweet too. I wanted to know what it was about Central Park that made it feel like Raymond and Garbui's village, besides the music. All this made me feeling like back home in the summer here. And if you can see in Central Park here, see, people are playing soccer and all this, and you can see they are coming from different parts of the world. Another thing that um, I can mention is that Central Park before, where at 6 p.m., everybody is afraid to be around here or to cross the park. Until 11 p.m., you can see people playing volleyball, playing soccer, and so in daytime as in evening times, there, is, there are good things going on. But why did it change? Why did it get safer? It got safer because community members uh, decided to make it uh, get better. <laughs> Grassroots initiatives like um, the Central Market, for example, which uh, started before the, the Central Park Redevelopment Project uh, came in, if the park got redeveloped today, it was uh, mostly because of the initiatives that uh, were going on here, especially the, uh, the Winnipeg um, Central Global Market during that time that was bringing people together, uh, dances, uh, cultural ceremonies together here. That's why some of the good hearts in Winnipeg saw it and they said uh, we will do something. Uh, the family who was behind this project who came to us one day at the market and said you guys have been doing great I will help you I will go home challenge my family and uh, to get this going and um, a few weeks later we got a good news one million dollars put down a few days later sorry did you say one million dollars yes there was one individual one young lady passing by and saw what we were doing and she was very impressed her family pledged one million dollars down and then they went to challenge the other three levels of governments and also with contribution from the winnipeg foundation and other organizations an announcement was made here by the former premier former mayor and other people there will be 5.6 million investment to get the park redeveloped. When they put money in, it was for the community members to benefit from it. There was a common decision made that uh, community members must have a say on what should happen here. The initial plan was not to have soccer pitch or where people can uh, skate in the winter time. Uh, it was supposed to be a, a huge stage where performers can come and when uh, the architectures they came to present uh, uh, the plan, the first plan, and they were very open to work with the communities too. So they presented, but the community members said, no, we can't uh, go with this plan. It has to be soccer pitch here because soccer pitch, why soccer pitch? Because this place is a home of uh, new immigrants newcomers and refugees and these people for those who 
had lived their whole life in refugee camp, what they knew was to to tie together a piece of uh, clothes and or socks, put plastic in uh, socks and round it, tight it and play as a and soccer. make a ball. Make a ball. <laughs> so <laughs> if there is a soccer pitch here, they can be happy here. But then we were going to to do that to the detriment of um, some categories of population. Canadian borns who are here who are not very used to the soccer will be missing their part. <laughs> so what to do? And there was a discussion and then we came up with a con in the conclusion that yes, a soccer pitch can be a soccer uh, ground or a volleyball ground in the spring and summer time. In the winter time it can be turned into uh, skating rink. So that's how uh, everybody applauded because that was uh, the best idea to, to come up with. So in the winter time now when the snow comes down, then they went over it. The city has been doing great by uh, making it a nice skating place. And finally, newcomers who were used to the soccer and who can only uh, play soccer or volleyball, they start learning how to skate in the winter time. <laughs> and that brings them together, brings them together with uh, Canadian porn so they learn about uh, the skating. Skating and, uh, and the music of Mehdi from Rwanda. Great skating music, don't you think? Let's all go there this winter. How would you skate to that music? I can see you roaring down the ice in a breakaway or twirling in a triple axle. Let's go back to Winnipeg Central Park on a day a few weeks later to hear from one of the world's leading thinkers on urban parks. Dr. Alan Tate has worked on park design and development all over North America, in Hong Kong, Australia, Paris, London, to name just a few places. Dr. Tate is a professor of landscape architecture at the University of Manitoba. He's also written two editions of the definitive book about urban parks called simply Great City Parks, in which he examines why 30 of the world's great parks succeed. We stood to talk in the sun at the south end of Central Park. Kids were playing nearby. I began by asking Dr. Tate a simple question. What makes a park successful? A kind of superficial one sentence answer is heavy use rather than abuse. You know, it shows that if, it's, if a park's used, like we're looking across now at the, the multi-sport play area, there's a group of school kids on there. Um, it's obviously attractive, successful, people are using it. And I think that that's one of the best measures you can have. And I think also, as you were telling me before we started this interview, there was consultation with the local residents around Central Park about what activities they wanted to see in the park. And I think that that's one of the important contributors to success is A, providing facilities that match the needs of the people who will be using the park, and B, if you really want to measure success, are they actually using it? About 120 years ago when this park was first created, it was created in what was considered to be a pretty elite neighborhood in downtown Winnipeg. 
what criteria do park renovators need to take into account when neighborhoods change? I think it's inevitable that you get change around a park. I mean, if one looks at a prime example like Central Park in New York, that itself has gone through um, various times of being in, in poor condition and being in extremely good condition. And it has been to a large extent a consequence of who's lived roundabout and who's invested in the place and, and what interest has been paid in what happens in the park. Because parks, particularly in high-rise uh, parts of the city, unlike when this was low-rise development, the parks become really the, the front yard for the apartment dwellers. When I was talking to Raymond and Garbui about this park, he has a very powerful sense of inclusiveness as being something very important to him. And one of the things that he focused on when gaining support for the renovation of the park was to consult really widely, not just in the streets around, but farther afield to many other organizations where he was building allegiances and linkages to other people who would see a value in what they were doing. How far afield do we have to think of as being the influence of a park? I think one of the, the ways that we have to look at them in quite strict terms is in with respect to the financing of them. The public sector generally, either through political will or just the general rising cost of providing statutory services has meant that the vast majority of uh, local government agencies, who are normally the suppliers of city parks, are um, stuck for cash. They uh, have uh, obligations that they have to meet first um, and parks will tend to be, although recognised as being extremely valuable, facilities that aren't actually statutorily required and therefore the money that is spent on them is optional. In a world like that where the financial pattern for public facilities is structured in that way, then it I think behoves anybody who's in the business of managing parks to go to the private sector and to go to other participants to gain support for what they're doing. And again, you know, you go back to Central Park or you look at the High Line in New York, but New York is probably the principal place anywhere in the world that has developed the model of the park as charity, where there is charitable giving because people recognise that parks are an extremely important component of urban areas. When we're looking ahead to where parks are changing, what way would you expect this park to change as the configuration of the people who use it begins to change? If you look at the wider pattern of the history of parks, I mean, they began, as you mentioned, uh, with Central Park here, uh, they began as being pastoral parks principally, and Assiniboine Park really remains the quintessential pastoral park. And I think that if there is a, a particular change that is occurring that's common almost around the world, it is in trying to, and I won't say re-naturalise, because very often they weren't necessarily natural areas in the first place, but to, to wild uh, urban parks. In other words, to increase the content of natural habitat or naturalised or mimicking of natural habitat within urban parks. That tends to happen in the larger parks where you've got uh, possibly lower density population roundabout. I think in a place like Central Park, 
there isn't sufficient room really to be able to develop that kind of area because the effectiveness of wilderness or wild areas uh, tends to be greater the larger the contiguous area. I think one of the great things about Central Park and one of the things that helps to activate it and give it so much life is the fact that it does have paths that lead across it as well as activities for people who are within it. That helps it to integrate with the neighbourhood. I'm not sure how many eyes there are on this park, but I would think that people living round about as I look around could probably send their kids down here relatively safely and keep an eye on them. That wouldn't be helped, perhaps, by developing wilderness areas or wilder areas within a park like this. But then in parks like Assiniboine Park, you will find more of the trend towards using native vegetation, protecting and managing the native vegetation, and trying to maintain um, a prairie and river bottom forest character uh, to the landscape there. As I look around at the apartment buildings that surround this park, they don't have front lawns and they don't have backyards. Is that because this park is their front lawn and backyard? I don't think it's because of that. I think it's just because they're probably uh, housing that's aimed towards lower income people. Uh, And one of the things that you tend to find, I think, in the housing market is that if and as people climb the housing ladder, one of the things that they will value is outdoor space, that front garden and backyard that you talked about. But since the majority of these properties roundabout don't have uh, those facilities, yes, this does become the front yard and the backyard. What is the impact of being exposed to green spaces, particularly on the children? Well, there's an interesting direct case study that's been done on this, which actually shows that kids that spend more time in green space tend to develop higher IQs. It's a relatively recent study, and there have been many longer-term studies that have looked at the psychological effects of uh, just being able to look down on green space. Particularly in Switzerland, quite early on, studies were done uh, about the rate of healing of um, hospital patients, those who actually had a view to a, a green vegetated outside world were measurably recovering faster than those who were uh, in a windowless room. I had some personal experience with medical recovery in a hospital room that was organized to give me a healing view. In 2012, my heart surgeon came into my room early one morning and told me I simply had to open my curtains. He told me that he knew of the healing power of my expansive view of the river and the park below. So he designed recovery rooms to maximize that view. I felt it. As I gazed out my windows into the January blizzard, my heart with its five new bypasses just soared. As the Dickie D cart rolled by, I wanted to know more about the lessons that Dr. Tate's experience had taught him. Since he had deeply studied great city parks for his books and had worked all over the world in park design, I wondered about the key lessons he took away from those experiences. I think the principal lesson that we learned uh, from park design, particularly or initially in Hong Kong, was to look at how people used parks already. Don't think that there are models that you can import from elsewhere, that a park is a park is a park. What we did was to go out into the existing parks, like Victoria Park on Hong Kong Island, and just look at what people were doing in there. And a bit like the, um, the density of the housing around Central Park here, there were 
two and three generations to a very small apartment, probably smaller apartments than, uh, than the ones here. Parks became almost the only trysting places. One of the other things that we saw that people did was they would take photographs of one another in the park. They didn't take photographs of one another in their uh, relatively cramped apartment. They tended to take them when they were out, you know, cycling at the weekend along the waterfront or, or in the parks themselves. So we tried to design photo settings into those parks. So, you know, much as you get in, if you go around a Disneyland facility, you get the Kodak photo moment. We were working on the basis of, of looking at the composition Two, three hundred years ago it would have been the composition of a painting probably that we were thinking about. Latterly in the 1980s, 90s, uh, we were thinking more in terms of photo settings and, and because those were the two principal activities that we saw primarily the young kids and, and Hong Kong still is and was certainly in the 80s a very, very young population. And so we reckoned that parks, particularly in the new towns where we were building them, would be very much used by the younger people in the population. For those who are listening who are saying, isn't Central Park that place that used to have the big issues with drug abuse and with vandalism and a lack of safety, particularly for females? How can I trust to go back there? What's your sense as to how this place has changed because of the attention that it has received from the people who live nearby and who want to make it a safer place. Jane Jacobs did a study in infamous book, probably one of the most cited books in, in the discipline, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And looking at the city of Philadelphia, she looked particularly at uh, Rittenhouse Square and some of the other central squares. The point that she made about them was that depending on what was happening in the buildings roundabout, those squares were either in good condition and safe places to go or they were in bad condition, poor condition and they were dangerous places to go and it really is very much subject to what is happening around about them rather than in them. The park doesn't change the neighbourhood per se but the neighbourhood changes the park. Can I ask before we separate and I send you back on your way was there something that you were thinking about anticipating this conversation that you wanted to leave with us as a key thought or a number of key thoughts? I think one of the key thoughts is, and, and this has struck me more and more during the pandemic, is the value of parks, uh, not just for, I mean, particularly, as we've said, for people who don't have their own space, but just as an opportunity, if you're only allowed out once a day, they are a place where you can go um, and enjoy open space and enjoy the contrast from staring at a screen, doing whatever it is that you're required to do by being indoors. I think that parks that have large open spaces become facilities for things we talked earlier about the, the initial or early suggestion of having a stage in Central Park. But this isn't really a large enough place to have a major event in the same way that major events take place in Central Park or the Royal Parks in London are financed by the fact that they have major concerts, some are in the park each year. I went a couple of years ago to see Neil Young, bless him, um, helping to finance the parks in central London. I think having those kind of gathering spaces is one of the functions that, that parks can fulfil. 
Um, equally, when I was looking at the emerald necklace in Boston, I went to a lecture by the director of the Arnold Arboretum, and he said that after the Boston Marathon bombing, he was surprised by the number of people who went and visited the Arboretum because it gave them solace, because open space, green open space, became a place that could help people to make sense of things. A survey of parks in Northern England was looking at, uh, at purposes of them, and one of the things that they came across was marriage guidance counsellors who advised people who were having difficulties in their relationship to take a walk in the local park together and try and talk about their relationship. They found that there was no place more conducive to that kind of conversation, that sitting in an office having that conversation in front of a counsellor was way more difficult than trying to address it uh, person to person in uh, neutral space that had a convivial atmosphere. Urban parks serve so many purposes, but that one is so central. We're not necessarily aware of the healing power of parks, but we do know that we just feel good when we're in them. Next week on Prairie Design Lab, we take a look at parks with a very different origin. Parks that were or are urban landfills. We explore the impact of Winnipeg's first landfill site and how it became a much-loved park. And we hear about the magical and inspiring vision one landscape architect has for the vast 2,000-acre Brady Road landfill site. Special thanks this week to interior design professor Jason Shields for all of his tech support and for composing and recording our lovely musical theme. See you next week on Prairie Design Lab. I'm Terry McLeod. <laughs>